Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. As a young girl growing up, what is the first brand you remember striking you or moving you for its creativity? For me, a really seminal experience was when I was a teenager, and my grandfather was actually in the liquor industry, and he was working on a launch of of a new tequila brand that he was going to bring to the U.S., and he asked me if I could help him out a bit. And this brand uh, was Espelon, Hmm. and he was, again, kind of bringing it to the U.S. for the first time, and I worked with him on the label design, on the marketing materials, and kind of the overall branding. This is obviously before it was later acquired by Campari. But I think that was the first time I realized that brands didn't just exist. They didn't just live on shelves, but that they were vehicles for people's creativity. And that every brand I saw, somebody had thought about it. And there were stories and insights that went into it. And that kind of switched on a light bulb for me and kind of sparked a passion that has really carried me forth ever since. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Laura Jones, the head of marketing at Instacart, a 10-year-old company that is the leading online grocery technology platform in North America. Instacart works with about 800 retailers, delivering from 70,000 stores in 5,500 cities across the U.S. and Canada. Instacart's business surged during the pandemic and is one of the most highly valued private companies in the world. My guest, Laura, is in her first year as head of marketing for Instacart, following a six and a half year stint at Uber. Before that, she worked at Google, Visa, and Deloitte. Laura has degrees from Dartmouth and Stanford, where she discovered and sharpened her skills in design thinking. We will talk about that and creativity. We recorded this episode at the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity in Cannes, France. Here is my conversation with a woman who is doing a lot of creative marketing, Laura Jones. Laura, welcome to the CMO Podcast, and welcome to the Cannes Festival in France. Now, I understand this is your first trip to the week-long Festival of Creativity. What is your first impression? Well, I'd say I'm incredibly excited to be here, a little bit overwhelmed at the number of people. I don't think I've seen this many people since the pandemic started, but yeah, I think the energy is just so great. I can't wait to see all that's on offer. And you just arrived this morning. So thank you for being on the podcast and being so alert. I want to ask you, what are your highlights of the week as you look forward? Well, I'm really excited to meet with some of the clients that advertise on Instacart and as well to check out all of the different activations and presence of the different companies. And then, of course, to check out some of the awards. This is, you know, I think every marketing leader's dream to, uh, you know, someday be featured. And so really excited to see all the work that's being honored here. So what is your strategy as a first timer? It's hard. What's your strategy for making sure you have time to see awards, meet the people you want to meet, meet your clients, so on and so forth? What's your strategy? Do you have an agenda? Are you open to serendipity? 
You have an agenda. I have a, a pretty packed agenda. I think in retrospect, I would have have loved to maybe block up a bit more time for that serendipity. But we've got a, a really ambitious week planned. And I think I'll be just excited to meet with um, all sorts of different folks and, and really just get my bearings. And hopefully this is the first of many canned showings for Instacart. I hope so. So, Laura, you've been at Instacart about a year. You've been about seven months as head of marketing. And you here you are on a yacht in Cannes. So I would say coming here in your first year is a pretty bold statement about your ambition on creativity. And I've also seen a lot of the, your recent work. And I think it's really fresh. I think it's really creative. So what's going on right in your culture to bring you here and to be seeing the kind of work I'm seeing from your brand? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's definitely been a big focus for me in year one is really building out a world-class team and specifically a world-class creative team. And when I joined Instacart, I had about 35 folks on my team. And over the past year, we've really brought the entire marketing org together and we're now at about 150 folks. So um, a ton of growth. Wow. <laughs> yeah, big, big year. And about half of those are new hires. Um, and the single biggest growth area for our team has been the creative studio. So we are building out what I hope will be one of the strongest creative shops uh, out there. And, you know, I think when I look at all the work here, I just feel really inspired and it really kind of whets my appetite for us to, to make world-changing work as well. So that's a lot of hiring in your first year. And I know that you're a believer in evidence-based recruiting and hiring. Yes. So have you lived that principle as you've hired so many people in such a short period of time? I am proud to say that I have. This is something that I started doing when I was at Uber. I, but basically, I really like to see what people make. I'm a believer in actions speak louder than words. And so whenever we bring someone into the organization, we ask them for two things. One is a homework assignment that they prepared response to a, a prompt about a real business problem that we're facing in Instacart just to see how their mind works. Um, and then I also asked to see a portfolio. And this is true whether it's a, a creative candidate or, or a strategy candidate. And what we're asking there is show us some work that you're proud of and, and tell us the story of this work. And what I'm really looking for there is that structure of what was the problem, what was the insight, what was the strategy. Um, what was the actual work? And then what were the results? And what did you learn? And I believe that across any discipline I'm hiring for, even creative operations, someone should be able to really speak to their work and do so with authority, humility, and kind of really be able to reflect on those learnings. I love it. How do you think about the cultural fit? I mean, the evidence-based, you know, because I love it because your discussion about the person is about their work and their evidence. And when I was at PNG, we always did that. We looked at what a person did and we just thought, you know, people can change, but the past is a reasonably good indication of what's going to happen in the future. So, but how do you how do you judge cultural fit? Yeah. So for cultural fit, one of the the key indicators for me is the the homework jam. So once someone has prepared and submitted a homework assignment, we have a meeting where we simulate what it would be like to have a real meeting. And I always invite cross-functional partners, so folks from product or design or engineering, data science. 
And I look, can they engage equally with the more creatively inclined folks and mm. the more analytically inclined folks? And when we ask them hard questions or provide new information that challenges some of their assumptions, can they adapt in real time? And can they do so in a way that's positive rather than defensive. And so that's been a great indicator for me and something that usually is a pretty good predictor to your point of how they'll behave in the future. You're a year in, you've hired a lot of people, you're doing a lot of fresh creative work. How did you get such a fast start? I mean, what was your onboarding like? Uh, Fast and furious. And luckily coming off of six years at Uber, I was used to kind of running along at a fair clip. And so, yeah, I joined and I think within um, a week of joining, the question was, could we could we get something on television before Thanksgiving? And at first, I kind of laughed and said, no, no, that's not possible. That's not how creative is made. Um, and lo and behold, we we actually did it. We managed to get something out there in early November. Uh, but in, in parallel, that was a bit, you know, I, I knew that whatever we would make would be a bit rushed, just given mm-hmm. where we were strategically. So in parallel, I also wrote a three-year strategic plan, which I then took to our CEO, our CFO, um, and really the entire S team to get that buy-in around not just kind of are we going to put something into the market quickly, but what is our long-term vision? What is the brand that we want to build? And what is the level of investment and commitment that I'm going to need from the company in order to do that? Because as we all know, uh, you know, the results, especially on the brand side, are not overnight. Um, so I tried to kind of balance some of that you know, short-term wins, um, get things into market, start learning while also kind of taking that time to craft a thoughtful long-term strategy. What was your inspiration for the strategic plan? It's not easy to write one of those in a company you've been in for a few years, you know, and you've been in this one only a year. So what was your inspiration? How did you do it? How did you put it together? Yeah, I, I really thought about it a bit like a venture capital pitch. And mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to kind of paint the vision of, of what I was trying to create and then also model out, you know, what this could look like in terms of the business outcomes. Because I knew that at a company like Instacart and being in tech, just coming in and talking about brand love and connection with the customer would be necessary, but not sufficient mm-hmm. to get that buy-in. So I, I definitely um, spent time on both halves and really wanted to kind of identify what I believe the soul of the brand would be and and put that forth, but also take that kind of rigorous approach of really looking at any historical data we had, looking at market comps, um, and really building out some projections that would build confidence that we could really not just be kind of a a single hemisphere organization, but that we could be right brain and left brain and nail both the creatives and the analytics. So marketing at Instacart is strategy and it is execution, it is creativity. That's not the case in all companies. So what is it about your firm and you that see marketing as a strategy capability within Instacart? Yeah, well, I believe that marketing is gonna be a huge and critical competitive advantage for us because when I think about this space that we're in and reflect on you know, my experiences in the past, um, we created a category, we created the category of online grocery, um, and we are continually expanding our services and getting into all sorts of different verticals. We're offering pickup, um, we're moving our delivery windows to be shorter and shorter. But the truth is all of those functional aspects are, are you know, going to be observed by the market and, and folks are going to come out and build similar technology. So the lasting edge for us really has to be brand. And so in that way, it couldn't be an afterthought. We really had to put together a strategy that would be durable, that would not allow us to really build equity in a brand over time and have that equity be differentiated and memorable so that when customers do have a choice of different similar services, that they really prefer us and look to us and feel connected to us. 
What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What do you feel has gone super well in your first year and what do you wish had gone better? That's a great question. I think the the best part uh, for me has been really bringing together all the marketers across the organization and really being kind of a full funnel marketing team. Because when I joined, we had kind of the two halves separated. We had kind of a a brand team and a performance team, and they were working in complete silos Mm -hmm. and really barely talking to one another. When the performance team had creative requests, they came in as a Jira ticket, and the creative team was left scratching their heads. And probably different KPIs for both teams, right? Completely different. Completely unconnected. Um, I don't even think there were real KPIs on, on the brand side and there was one brand marketer when I joined. And um, so we had a lot of work to do to, to unify the team and to really show that we could bring the team together and that, that these two organizations would be stronger together. So I think that's the thing I've been most proud of because I think, you know, it's going to enable us to do really game-changing work and, and hopefully p- really prove out full funnel and, you know, in a big way. Um, what could have gone better? I think that it's been a learning experience and because we're moving so fast and because we grew, you know, so incredibly quickly, really 5xing headcount in a year, and there have been stumbles that we've made in terms of um, shoots we've done where we didn't, we weren't happy with the output because we were moving too quickly. We mm-hmm. were working with a partner we didn't know. And, and so, you know, in a perfect world, I wish that, you know, everything we had done had been up to that bar of what I really think um, we we should hold ourselves to. Um, but in doing so, we learned kind of what made the conditions for, for great work, what made the conditions for less than great work, um, and really trying to kind of set up organizational processes to make sure that everything we do is the best possible work and, and raises the bar each time. What are your, where are you spending your time now? It's a great question. I think it it almost depends on, you know, the month or the week or the day. And, you know, I talked a little bit about full funnel and Mm -hmm. really that is my focus right now is how do we connect the top and the bottom of the funnel? We've got some really exciting brand work in the, in, in the making. And, but we've also um, unified our entire media team. So instead of having a separate brand media team and performance media team, which we did previously, we've now integrated them. And so a lot of what I want to do is really figure out measurement and figure out how we're going to show the impact of this brand investment. So we've just finished our H2 plan. That was certainly most of last month mm-hmm. was spent knee deep in that. The last few weeks we were shooting um, some work and now it's all about really thinking about the measurement and execution of the media plan to support that work. So and it's it's variable and that's part of what makes it fun is yeah. one day you can be, you know, discussing art direction on a set and the next day you're you know, deep in a model trying to figure out the numbers and working with the data scientists. You have 150 people or so now. And this last year has been turbulent around us, right? We have war now. We still have COVID. 
We have stock market volatility. We have all sorts of stuff going on uh, still in society. How do you keep your organization, which is now way bigger than when you joined, how do you keep them optimistic without being, you know, out of touch and confident and creative and stretching and loving their work? So what do you do in the, when there's so many distractions and, and life day to day is volatile? What do you do as a leader to keep them really focused and energized? Yeah, it's a great question. This year has been a, a really rocky one, as you say. And I think it comes back to just conviction in what we're doing and why we're doing it. And part of the reason I was so excited to join Instacart is because it's a service that I use. I have two children, I work, and it's really, you know, through the pandemic and, and beyond just getting back to kind of the busyness of life, it's been a, a lifeline for me. Um, and certainly is to all of our customers as well as, you know, plays a huge role in the lives of our shoppers who make their livelihood on the platform. And it's also um, a huge part of the business of our retailers, some of whom are large national chains, others whom are small SMBs. And, and then of course, advertisers, there's a great value that we provide there as well. So I really try to keep it focused on the value we're creating, the role we play in people's lives. And I think that if people are connected to the mission, then it makes every day um, feel meaningful. And, and you can see, you know, hey, even if things are tough, we're making a lot of different constituents' lives a little bit better by doing what we do. Your CEO also joined in the last yes. year, right? So you have a head of marketing and a CEO coming into the company. How did you, and that relationship is so important in every company, uh, the CEO and the head of marketing. So what did you do to be sure you were on the same page on your vision for the company, the brand, the strategy, which you just talked about. How did you do that? Yeah, well, I feel really lucky the way that the timing worked out because right when I started, I kicked off a project to define our brand purpose with the wonderful Jonathan Mildenhall, so good. 21st Century Brand. And it was a perfect way to come on board because we did a ton of in-depth interviews with all four sides of the marketplace. We spent a lot of time in kind of information gathering mode. And it was during that time that the leadership changed and Fiji came in. And what we did was within her first week, we had an intake session and we just spoke to her about the project and then listened. And it was, you know, over an hour of just really understanding her vision for the company, her personal reasons for joining the company, and really came to see kind of her passion for where this company was going to go. And at that point, again, luckily, the paint was still wet. So we were able to take all of that and really use that as a critical input to the output of this project. And, you know, it, you can see, I think, her fingerprints in the brand purpose and in the work that we're doing now. I love that you went in with your thinking, with the data from all your interviews and the outside, Jonathan helping you. He's, he's such a brilliant person and marketer. And then asking your CEO just human questions. What, why did you join? Where do you want to take the company? Why are you passionate about that? I, I don't think we have enough of those kinds of discussions often at a senior level, especially when we're all new to each other. So well done. Thank you. Now, one thing that in my research about you, and I did a lot, <laughs> one thing that distinguishes you from other CMOs or heads of marketing or CMOs is your background in design thinking. You studied this approach at Stanford where you went to graduate school and you earned your master's. Can you speak a bit about what design thinking is? We did a lot of that at Procter & Gamble too, so I'm pretty well versed. For our listeners though, what is it and how does it affect how you approach business and marketing? Well, 
for me, design thinking is at the core of uh, any any business challenge that I seek to solve because it's really for me about human centered design and thinking about the customer first and really understanding deeply the needs of that customer, whether it's, a, again, a, a customer, a consumer, a single individual, or, you know, putting on the B2B hat, it could even be an organization or folks within that organization. So really thinking about who am I designing for, and then taking a structured approach to um, going through that that design thinking process, the double diamonds, and starting with insights and really understanding that that customer really then forming kind of a point of view around the problem statement, opening the aperture and brainstorming, flaring, my favorite part where it's creativity. There's no constraints and it's just all the juices flowing. And then kind of then focusing back down to that, that final tip of the diamond where it's all about prototyping, testing, getting market feedback. And one thing I love about tech is that unlike, uh, you know, in, in a physical product world where you're specking out a product and then producing it and it's relatively static in its form with tech, for better or for worse, I guess, we get to keep iterating. And so even once a product is launched, if you get back data that suggests, hey, this isn't as usable as it could be, or there's a point in the funnel where we see a bunch of drop-off and people are clearly getting stuck, we have that opportunity to kind of iterate and continue to evolve. And so for me, um, tech marketing and and design thinking are, are almost one and the same. When you were this young woman studying at Stanford in graduate school, what attracted you to the concept? When were you, was it a person? Was it a teacher? When were you introduced to it? It was really um, kind of fortuitous because I started my career in consulting and it was kind of pure analytics, living my life in spreadsheets. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for the kind of foundational training that that gave me. But I have always loved painting and art. And I found myself at night, I was living in DC at the time, I found myself going to a painting studio at night and, you know, doing, working on these large scale oil paintings and staying up into the night. Um, and then when I was, you know, at a client site and, and couldn't paint, I would kind of feel this, this sadness or the separation. And at some point I thought, you know what, I really need to find a career that enables me to do both of these things, that enables me to, you know, continue to exercise my left brain and continue to challenge myself kind of in in a more traditional sense. But as well, I I didn't want to lose that creativity that had always been the thing that fueled me and motivated me. And so I I remember kind of in my mid-20s thinking, how do I how do I do this? And all my friends from consulting were applying to business school. And then a friend told me, oh, I, I hear there's this thing at Stanford called the D School. And I'm, I grew up in San Francisco, so I went home for you know a holiday. And I remember going to the Stanford campus. And at the time, the D School was in a trailer, literally mm-hmm. a single trailer with a plastic sign outside. And I remember kind of walking up to this trailer and having this feeling that my future was inside this trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Stranger Things. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And then fast forward, you know, now it's in a huge, amazing building. It's an established part of the campus. And and so many students have, have come through the program. But I think I was uh, the first person that ever applied to Stanford Business School solely to study at the D School. And, wow. you know, that kind of became my claim to fame that I was that that, you know, person that was really only getting my MBA so I could hang out in this trailer. So that was David Kelly back then, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Was he in the trailer when you knocked on the door? He has been very much involved in in my experience as a design, design thinker, both at the D School and then even afterwards and have stayed in touch. And uh, 
his children actually go to the high school oh. or went to the high school that I went to, which is a technical arts high school. So I do feel that there's been um, this incredible kind of connective thread that I feel so lucky to, to be able to kind of be a part of. Well, David Kelly founded IDEO. And when I was at PNG, we learned from them a lot. Yeah. They were very influential in our approach to design thinking. Yeah, he's amazing. And I think, you know, everything, every class that, that he spoke at, every book that I've read from him has made me better and has changed the way that I think. And, you know, really value the fact that he is always challenging all of us kind of business people to um, continue adapting and evolving. I went to visit him before I wrote my first book. And I asked him why he writes books and what does he think success is when he writes a book. You know what he said to me? He said, if you can change in some way the language of business, that is a success. And he certainly has done that. He definitely has. So this design thinking approach, which you spoke so beautifully about, how are you applying that or approaching that at Instacart? So one of my favorite applications of design thinking at Instacart has been the way that we think about our shoppers. So our shoppers are this incredible community of folks that are going out and helping all of us, you know, get our carts delivered. And, and you know, it's a, it's a tough, tough thing to do to, to be a shopper. And one of the aspects of the way that we and come to understand, you know, what we're building and, and how it's impacting their experiences, not only through these kind of in-depth interviews or um, different kinds of qualitative research and, and certainly quantitative research, but we also have an immersion program where we all shop. So I have done batches. I have experienced firsthand what's easy and fun about it and what parts of it are really hard and need to get better. And so I think there's nothing like that kind of firsthand experience and to generate that empathy and to really force you to kind of eat the dog food and really understand what what is and isn't working about this experience. Um, and, you know, then go back and file tickets with the tech team and uh, make sure that the, the parts of it that were challenging from a technical side are being dealt with. And then on the flip side, really thinking about, well, what are the, the non-technical parts of it? What are the parts of it that are experience design that can be better? And so one of the key changes that we've made based on this program is really kind of cataloging the top pain points. And then um, we've recently announced a shopper commitment where we're starting to really address those head on. So one of the first components of that was fixing our support or improving our support. Support can never be probably fully fixed, but I'm really improving the way that we do support and really acknowledging that it can be stressful in the moment if something's going wrong, your app's not working. Um, and so really making a commitment to improved support. And um, similarly, we've tackled things like ratings and earnings understanding. And I'm just really proud that everyone in the company has that kind of shopper centricity and really has to walk a mile in those shoes before they um, touch the code or before they make changes that could impact that experience. That's such a critical thing you did and you just talked about. I mean, to go out and do the work, the people that are most important to your company, right? The people who are at the edge of uh, working with customers and end customers and retail partners. And so good for you. And for all of our listeners, there's just nothing more powerful for a leader than to send the signal. I want to understand your work and give you a voice in the future of this company. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a great program and kudos to the folks that set that up because it's definitely a lot to, you know, teach us all how to how to do this task. But um, I, I think it will pay huge dividends in making sure that the experience of shopping on the platform is as good as it can be. Absolutely. So I want to shift your career path and you do have quite a blue chip career path. Deloitte, which you talked about as a consultant, Visa, Google, Uber, and of course now Instacart. Could you talk about a time or two in that career path 
when your creativity was really on fire, on overdrive with yourself, with your team, and what you learned from that experience. We're at a festival of creativity, yeah. so we're going to end on some creativity themes. Yeah, totally. Well, I'll, I'll speak about first and a time at Google when I feel like my creativity was really ignited. And this was when I was working on shopping. And I was, at the time, you know, really interested in kind of trends that were going on in, in retail and apparel retail. And this was kind of the rise of YouTube and kind of was so interested in how people that you know we would now call influencers were making all this great content and i always was kind of wondering well where can i get that content and uh, in the meantime i was working on um, our product listing ads and google express which was mm-hmm. an early delivery service yep. and um, google was just getting into uh, streaming and hangouts on air and so one day I was watching this specific YouTube video, um, Rachel Zoe talking about cabana stripes. And the question was, well, you know, where do I, where do I get these? And, you know, what are the ranges at different budget levels? Um, and I said, you know, it wouldn't it be cool if you could shop this video and gee, we have all the ingredients here at Google. We have, you know, these product ads, we have streaming, we have YouTube content. And so I approached an uh, engineer in the department and said, hey, I think we should build this little prototype and kind of got a bunch of folks on the Google Google Plus team back in the day on board. And we built a technology called Shoppable Hangouts on Air, which, you know, is kind of uh, was the <laughs> old school version of, you know, what Pop Shop Live is today. Um, we built it, we patented it, and we actually launched it with Diane von Furstenberg um, right around Fashion Week. And that was just such a an amazing experience of having an idea and actually being able to fully realize it both on the product and the marketing front and to have the resources within a company to, you know, have that idea, build it, launch it in the best, biggest, most fun possible way. And, and you know, I think we were maybe a little bit before our time mm-hmm. because that product, yeah. it actually lived on and, and became embedded into the tech stack there. But it's funny for me now to watch this whole kind of wave of shoppable video come out and say, you know what, we actually kind of did that a decade ago. But I, I guess the best ideas always kind of need need the convergence also with kind of social readiness. So, yeah, that's been really fun to see kind of the resurgence of, of shoppable video. And I'd say the second and, and the other time is right now. And as I said, we just finished up a shoot. We've got some great work that we're going to be coming out with. And being with the team the past few weeks shooting, we shot part of it abroad, part of it in L.A., um, it just... I had this moment of thinking I just felt so lucky and I was actually reflecting a bit on the journey and how, you know, I ended up at Stanford and how I ended up in marketing. Mm-hmm. And just, I remember a few weeks ago and um, we were in Prague shooting and I, I just thought, you know, this is kind of what I had always dreamed of and how incredible to be on set with some of the most talented creatives and director in the world and just feel and um, that fire of creativity uh, still burning after all these years. So I, I do think that right now um, does feel like one of those moments for me. How do leaders create those conditions? Of, you just talked about two situations which had certain characteristics and conditions. What were those and how can our leaders who are listening create those in their own organizations? Yeah, it's such a good question. It's one that I think about constantly. I think it's a balance of constraints and freedom. That, that really enable great creativity. So you have to have the constraints of, you know, what is the goal we're trying to accomplish? What is the budget that we have? You know, what, what are all the logistics that we need to work through, which 
gives you some parameters, gives you a purpose, and is kind of that prism through which you filter that creativity. But on the flip side, and, and again, reflecting on the story I just told about Google, you also need to have a, a bit of flexibility and freedom and white space canvas for people to paint on so that when someone has a crazy idea, it, it's in a, it can take root and it can flourish and it can grow. And so I think that, you know, as much as we are all tempted to fully utilize every resource and make sure that every dollar on the budget is is pinned to an initiative, um, I, I think there's also kind of a bit of an art to creating just enough flexibility so that when someone has a crazy idea, you can say yes. Your longest stint at a company in your career has been at Uber, and you were there for six plus years, I think. How did that prepare you for this role you're in now, which you've obviously gotten off to a very fast start and you obviously love it? Yeah, I think Uber was an incredible professional experience for me. It took me from kind of being one of a pack, you know, Google's a large company. I was one of many, many PMMs there. And I um, was so lucky to have the opportunity to to go over to Uber with my product director who um, kind of called me up one day. I was five months pregnant and he had just moved to Uber and he said, Laura, you need to come to Uber. And I said, you know what? why don't you call me back in about a year? I'm about to have a baby. I need my maternity leave. And he said, you know, I'm happy to do that, but in a year you'll be working for this person. And so I uh, hung up the phone and (laughs) had a big think and said, you know what, I'm going to jump. I'm going to do this. And I did it. And I waddled in five months pregnant. And this is Uber in 2015. So not a lot of pregnant ladies waddling around. But I think um, Uber just, it, it really shot me up that growth trajectory because I was challenged every day that I was there for six years. Every day there was a problem that crossed my plate that I did not know how to deal with. And that made me better every day. Um, and, you know, I think by the time I left, I really had grown so tremendously and, and had really tested what I was capable of and, and came to realize that I wanted to keep doing that. I didn't, I didn't want to kind of settle, rest on my laurels and just kind of keep doing the same thing. I wanted to continue to challenge myself. And so I I really credit Uber with kind of showing me what I could do and um, providing that constant stream of challenges so that I, I never got comfortable. How did you evolve most as a leader in that time? Well, that was a, a tricky period, right? A challenging period um, to be to be at a company like that. We had hyper growth and in the kind of 2015 to 2017 era, then obviously kind of famously some rocky times, mm-hmm. um, some changes in leadership. And, you know, I think it really forced me to lead through both the good and the bad. And I remember I was in a, in a leadership development course and uh, during that summer of 2017, and it was, you know, a, a really, I guess, lucky time to be in that kind of supportive environment, but also a really challenging time where each of us was trying to figure out how to guide our team through, through this. And um, at the end of it, they gave us a plaque that said, anyone can hold this the the wheel when the sea is calm mm, um, mm. and you know i'm not usually one <laughs> to hold on to corporate swag but that one i have kept to this day because it is true i think you know when when everything's good when the business is good and the culture is good you know it's still hard to be a leader but yeah. it's 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 not as hard and when when you know the very premise of your company when your leadership is is all being challenged when people around you friends and family are asking not just you, but people on your team. Why do you work for this company? And um, it puts the onus on the leader to help people believe and help people see what's on the other side of this. And again, remind people why they are doing what they're doing, why they came to this company that's bigger than any one person or any one business cycle or any one scandal. It's, it's really a mission and kind of 
being able to get people through that um, was the best, the best management lesson um, I could have ever possibly imagined. <laughs> what compelled you to join Instacart? When I was thinking about making a move, I, I really wanted to join a company that I really believed in and, and valued. And um, again, the Uber had been that for me. Mm -hmm. Google, these are all services and companies yep. that I use and I love. And I remember, you know, when it started to become clear that I was ready to move on, I, I wrote down a list of companies and products that I liked and used and admired. Um, and really also kind of put a bit of a lens of purpose and, and wanted to make sure whatever I was doing um, was really purpose forward. And Instacart was definitely on that list for me. It was a service that I had relied upon deeply and had also seen other folks, my parents, you know, during COVID when they didn't want to go to the grocery store or didn't feel safe going, that they had access, you know, and <laughs> not necessarily the, the most usable app for people, you know, at that stage of life, but, you know, watching them kind of learn how to use that app and then see the value of it um, was, was really meaningful. And um, so when I got the call, I, um, I felt like it was kind of fate. And so mm -hmm. I, I picked up the phone and said, let's, let's talk. Wow. Great story. Now we're in Cannes. So we're going to end this podcast in the create a brief section as I do all the time, but we're going to focus on creativity. And the first question is when are you most creative? Definitely for me when I paint, I still love to paint. I paint with my children. I paint on my own. And that for me just gets me into the flow zone and always I walk away from it with new ideas, with a new perspective and kind of renewed energy to go out and, and solve problems creatively at work as What well. are you painting now? I right now am doing some a lot of still lifes with my kids. Um, being a mom of two, it's and say that the time for the bigger, more ambitious, large format paintings and oil Later. that I, I used to like to do pre-kids are not as much on the table. So it's a lot of um a lot of still life. So sometimes I'll paint and um, different portraits or paint animals. So it's it's a bit um, more limited in scope and ambition, but still really therapeutic to mm -hmm. just um, have that experience. And again, I think, you know, when my when my kids are bigger and I can get back into a studio, um, there's there's a lot I'm excited to explore. What's the most creative campaign or initiative you have worked on in your career? I have to say this one that's coming out. Oh, wow. It's, it's when, when will we see it? Q3. Q3, okay. Q3. Not far away. Not too far. Yeah, it's it's by far the most ambitious um, that I've ever worked on. I mean, I'm I'm super proud of all the work that the team has done this year. We rebranded the company, um, and that was, I'd say, a, a real bright spot. And um, you know, giving giving the carrot a bit of a makeover. Yeah, I've noticed giving it some kind of motion, some flexibility, making it a bit less literal. Um, so I'm very proud of that work as well. But from a, a campaign standpoint, I will say the best is yet to come. What is a creative campaign at large? that has sometime in your life struck you or moved you? Well, going back to Jonathan, I think Airbnbs Belong Anywhere for me was the kind of pinnacle of aligning purpose, messaging, and even the product roadmap. And as somebody that spent a, a part of my career as a product marketer, I really love that you, that, that with this incredible brand purpose, so simple, but so clear, you not only understood how the brand was going to behave and how customers would feel, you also understood why something like Airbnb experiences would launch. Um, and it really just gave the company a roadmap. And when I set out to, to work on this rebrand and part of why um, I was so excited to get to work with Jonathan is that that to me is the gold standard and exactly what I aspired to. And that's what I'm so excited about the work that we'll get to do now creatively is that 
and it draws off of all of that work that went into the rebrand and starts to bring it to life in its kind of full full form. So um, yeah, I think that when you have kind of such a clear purpose, the work that follows is is much stronger. I remember when I first saw that video from Airbnb, I said, Jonathan's there. <laughs> that, you know, it was, it, yeah, it was him. Totally. And it was so right for the company. When did you develop your conviction that creativity is really important in business? Well, I think I've, Creativity has always been important to me personally. From, you know, a young age, I've always loved making things. I think I started painting, you know, uh, as, as a finger painter as a toddler and really never stopped and just got, you know, slightly uh, more refined instruments. But I think I think it really was that time, um, you know, in, in my mid-20s after working in consulting that I realized just how limiting it would be to only think with one side of my brain. And you know, really, again, coming to the D school and seeing all the the ways that creativity can be brought to life in business and whether it's in, in a campaign or in the way that code is developed or mm-hmm. the product roadmap. And it showed me that, you know, we would be better if we all applied this kind of design thinking framework or really looked at kind of intersectional thinking mm-hmm. and looked at other disciplines to enrich our work. So I, I think that period of time, um, really changed the way I thought about kind of what business even meant. Who's the most creative person you've ever met? I think David Kelly would have David to Kelly, be yeah. a, a strong contender. Again, I think he he can look across any discipline mm-hmm. and find the story of creativity. And part of what I loved about the D School is that it brought together not just kind of the, the cohorts that are maybe most obvious and kind of design school folks and and the business school folks, but it also brought med students and it brought people from the School of Education or the Environmental Science Department. And realizing that all of these fields could benefit from creativity just totally changed the way that I thought about what creativity even was. And I realized it it's about problem solving. It's less about the output and the pretty picture that the painting isn't really about the painting itself, it's about the process of making the painting and the, all the problems you have to solve to get it to look the way that you want it to look in your mind. And that that, you know, is true in medicine and, and it's true in all these other disciplines. It's about having a vision and solving all those problems to get to that end state. You were a teaching assistant when you were at Stanford for Jennifer Ocker, who's a famous professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Great author, great woman, great leader. Great father, by the way. I learned a lot from her dad, yes. who wrote a lot about marketing. What did you learn from Jennifer about creativity? Well, when Jennifer came back to Stanford, and that was right when I was a second year, she wanted to bring the design thinking curriculum to the business school, to her marketing courses. And that's really how I met her. And part of why I, I ended up working for her is that I was kind of known as the design thinking expert. And so it was a really natural partnership. And I think from her, I learned um, a lot about uh, almost like life philosophy, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. um, she, she now teaches a course called Designing for Happiness. And she really thinks about design zoomed out from, you know, a, a specific business challenge or a specific product and, and really thinks about um almost life as the product. And a few lessons I learned from her, you know, from designing for happiness um, were really around kind of the intentionality with which one can approach life and how much that changes the level of happiness that you experience. And one of the the things I took away um, from her is that 
she she had this um, framework she thought about that she said, okay, write down the top six things that matter for you. And, you know, it's obviously family, career, um, physical, exercise, art. You know, this is my mm-hmm. list. I think a lot of, you know, people's lists are probably roughly similar. And, you know, you have 24 hours in a day. So you're not, if, if you're just uh, kind of trying to do one of each, you're not going to get very far on that list, especially with the amount of work that many of us take on. And she she introduced me to this concept of double plays and triple plays and home runs. And so how might you find opportunities to um, experience m- many of those things together? So for me, I love to swim in the San Francisco Bay. I love cold, cold water. Um, and I love to do that with my husband, with his parents, with my friends. And that's a great example of a home run because it's it's physical exercise, it's time with family, it's time with my spouse and time with friends. And I get that all in one experience, which I, I certainly wouldn't have time for all of those things if I was doing them um, individually. And so that changed the way that I thought about my time. And by using my time in a different way, it, it changed you know, the, the amount of kind of happiness that I could squeeze into one day. So I, I, I've always taken that with me um, and that's, of course, just one of, of kind of a, you know, many books worth of, of life lessons in terms of how to design your own life. That's a good place to stop. This has been a home run of a conversation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your insights. Thank you for coming to see us after a red eye. And I wish you a week of creativity and sunshine and great relationships and a really super time here at the Cannes Festival. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a great experience. That was my conversation in Cannes with Laura Jones. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. First one is get everyone aligned on a strategy. One of the first things Laura did in her first year was a marketing strategy. She wrote a strategic plan, got everyone aligned on it, including the new CEO, and they began executing it quickly and creatively. Second takeaway, design thinking. Think about your framework for how you approach problems. Laura is a big believer in design thinking. She elaborated why she's a believer. Maybe it's appropriate for some of you, but I thought it was an extremely thoughtful conversation of a framework for approaching problems. Third takeaway, Laura is really intentional and thoughtful about her career and her creativity. She went through her process of moving from Uber to Instacart by making a list of the kind of company she wanted to be a part of. She's intentional in how she thinks about her painting and its role in her life. So this is a woman we can all learn a lot from for her thoughtfulness, her intentionality, and her joy in her work and in her life. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.